the myth is that good entrepreneurs are insane risk takers. And it is true that you need courage and a propensity and a willingness and a tolerance for risk to be a good entrepreneur. But excellent entrepreneurs, ones who not don't just start things, but start things that last, spend almost all the rest of their time de-risking. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Paul Van Ziel. Delighted to get Paul on the podcast today. At Monkhouse & Company, we coach purpose-led CEOs of fast-growing tech firms mainly. But when I see an intersection where somebody else is doing something that overlaps with that world, then I'm delighted to get them on the podcast and see what we can learn from, from maybe their parallel universe. And it's Paul's case, it's purpose. He's a human rights lawyer who was at the heart of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And we talk a bit about that. Then we talk about how his entrepreneurial journey has taken him on a purpose-led voyage of discovery. He co-founded the Conduit Club in London, which is not just uh, another private members club, but is also purpose-led. It's, it's, it's where members come together to change the world. And he talks about how even in a hospitality business like The Conduit, how purpose can lead to amazing staff connectivity. So he says his chefs don't just cook food, they're on a mission to help The Conduit in its purpose to change the world. So great conversation with Paul. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. My name is Paul Finsale. I'm the uh, Chief Creative Officer and co-founder of The Conduit, and I am a South African. And what's The Conduit? The Conduit is a community of people who are passionate about positive social change. We have a 20,000 square foot building in the heart of Covent Garden on a beautiful pedestrianized street. And we have about one and a half thousand to two thousand people who walk into our building on a weekly basis to hear stories about how to uh, change the world in a pragmatic solutions oriented way we also have event spaces and two wonderful restaurants and a co-working space so it's a it's a community gathering place for change makers and What's the backstory? Why, why did you bring this to the world? Or why did you think the world needed 
this gathering space? Yeah, so maybe uh, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of The Conduits. Um, so there were three of us. And uh, uh, my particular experience is I'm a human rights lawyer by training. I was executive secretary of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I worked very closely with Desmond Tutu. And uh, by virtue of that, also got to see Nelson Mandela a fair amount during the, during the, the work of the Truth Commission. And so... That experience taught me that leadership really matters, that great men and great women can shift the destinies of nations and of the world. And, you know, the Truth Commission was an experience to try and take the worst of humanity, the most horrific events, the most terrible human rights violations and deal with them in a way that restored the dignity to victims, but also allowed a nation to move forward and not always be um, held back and constrained by a painful past. So that's one part of my life experience that's relevant to the conduit. The second is um, I was chosen as a ludicrously termed young global leader and started going to Davos. And I spoke at TED Africa and I won the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship um, and spoke in the Aspen Ideas Festival. And so found myself at these conferences of really uh, prominent, interesting, engaged, high potential people, but that only went for three or four days. And what the conduit tries to do is be a permanent convening place where entrepreneurs, investors, philanthropists, policymakers, filmmakers, artists, activists can all get together and look at problems and then stop focusing on the problem and start thinking creatively about the solution and do it all the time. And I think the world has many problems, but we don't, we're not as good as creating structured ways of us convening and bringing all the different talents, disciplines, and resources of humanity to bear in trying to tackle those problems. And that's what we try and do on a, on a daily basis at The Conduit. Just going back to your experience in South Africa, is, is that the first time a nation state has tried to convene something like that and use that as a springboard for change? Actually, it's not the first time. In fact, uh, truth commissions were established in Central and Latin America, Central and South America before Chile and Argentina and El Salvador all led the way. And, and the South African experience was deeply informed by a global overview of what other nations had done. What we were the first of is the first commission that held publicly televised live hearings in which the pain of the nation was poured out into the eight o'clock news on the front page of every newspaper, broadcast live on every radio station. And so I think what made us perhaps the most prominent truth commission to have occurred was that we very consciously embarked on a strategy of engaging the nation in a national dialogue for two and a half years about our painful past, but doing so in a way that we hoped would be constructive to allow people to move on. How do you feel about its success? Well, 
you know, we did many, we made many rookie mistakes because we were learning as we went. And and I would say um, it has stood the test of time. I think it's widely regarded as a safety valve for a nation in transition. We had, we were a safe space to which Nelson Mandela and the apartheid leaders who you shouldn't forget were in a power sharing cabinet together immediately after our first democratic elections. They could send the conflicts of the past to a commission which for a period of three years dealt with it in a careful, thoughtful and responsible way. And that didn't mean that it wasn't filled with controversy and pain and difficulty, but it was all within a structure and within a process so it didn't cause that process to go off the rails and it allowed us to channel the pain and the grief and the anger and the outrage through a mechanism. And I think that that's really an important thing. It's, it's a global lesson that your choices are not to deal with the past or not deal with the past. Your choices are to deal with the past in a proactive and constructive way and hopefully make your nation stronger and better for it or to seek to avoid the past and then have the past come back and bite you and confront you in ways that are destructive, unpredictable, and poisoning of the present. And we did the former. Yes, indeed. I, I, I mean, it just, it seems as though it goes against, you know, the, the, as you say, it's about leadership because it's choosing, choosing a path which seems counterintuitive. And yet the success is, I think you're saying, the speed with which things moved, the transparent nature of them, that it was also, there was also sort of time limiting. It was a three-year process. Is that a model that businesses, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I just think about, uh, you know, sort of pain and grief in a much smaller way that organizations that I work, you know, I mean, mergers and acquisitions. There's a whole load of things where people have a, uh, if, they, if you don't deal with, what people think about as betrayal or pain or or grief even, that, as you say, it bites you again. Yes, I think that human beings tend to live for better and for worse in the present. As the crisis of climate change will tell you, we're not very good at making painful long-term decisions to avoid existential consequences. And we're also not particularly brilliant in looking backwards when something has happened and devoting the time to it so that you can produce proper closure. Now, when we are at our best, we do both things. We look back and we look forward in a responsible and constructive way. And that's what makes humanity remarkable. But we more often than not, fail to do both backward-looking and forward-looking exercises thoughtfully and responsibly. And I think that's one of the lessons that I think we're trying to do here at The Conduit is, you know, you can't move forward in building diverse, multi-ethnic, harmonious democracies without acknowledging the pain and legacy of slavery. And we won't be here for our grandchildren unless we take some painful but necessary steps in order to deal with the coming climate emergency. And we can do both as humans, but we have to get out of our own way uh, sometimes in order to do that. And so what do, what do we, or in which, in which ways do you, is the conduit helping 
to take what you learned from your South African experience and apply that to climate change? So I'll give you an example. When we were designing our process, we flew in to South Africa, the leading people who managed the transitions in Chile and in Argentina and in El Salvador and Poland and East Germany. And we looked at all the interesting transitions that had happened from authoritarian rule to democratic rule in South America, from communism to more democratic free market states in Eastern Europe and in the former Soviet states. And then we said, let's listen very, very carefully and then let's take what seemed to be effective in each of those and then make our own sui generis solution ourselves. Now, that central insight is applicable to entrepreneurship and to climate and dealing with the climate crisis, right? That every entrepreneur who just says, I have a totally fresh new idea. I can learn nothing from any of my past experiences or from comparisons with other people who are my competitors or my collaborators are doing is a fool, right? And anybody who's trying to deal with any of the challenges that we need to get to a net zero would do very, very well of sort of doing a survey of what works and doesn't work. And then the genius is to innovate your own particular distinctive solution based on that learning. So I think that spirit has really come into the conduit. We do 200 events a year and we try and bring together a group of people who are problem solvers and then to say, what can the lessons of how you uh, electrify transport systems in London tell us about how you can clean air in Delhi and vice versa, what can the Indian experience of moving away from kerosene generators powering telco to a more sustainable notion tell you about what you could do in Nigeria. And that cross-learning is, I think, a really, really valuable thing for everybody to be engaging in. I suppose you can get the right people in the room to speak, but how do you make sure the right people are in the room to listen? Yes. So... That's about brand building and building a business, right? So when we set ourselves up, we said, you know, uh, what do we want the conduit to be known as and what do we want the conduit brand to be associated with? So I just yesterday pulled a sample of a thousand of our members who in their applications, once they've been accepted, wrote up uh, why they joined the conduit. And 96% said they want to be part of a community of change makers. And 95% said they want to participate in our program of events and learn while doing so. And then 75% said we would like to wine and dine and hang out with people and meet people. And 50% said we're looking to make investments. And the corresponding number said we're looking for investments. And then some people said we want to be a hanging out place between home and work. But the two initial statistics, the 95%, 96%, were the relevant ones, which is you want to stand for something. And if you live in London or visit London and you you want to be involved actively in positive social change, I think we have succeeded in being known as a place and a brand that will have like minded people there. And then it's really just making sure that when people get through the door, 
they're not disappointed, that they have a good experience, that what's on the outside of the tin is inside as well. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the hard work of building a business and delivering on your promises. So just to take you back to South Africa quickly, who, who was the, there must have been one person who said, look, this truth and reconciliation process, I think this is something that the nation, was that Desmond Tutu? Or was that was there somebody else who came up with the idea? Because it's not the type of thing a committee would come up with, it feels. It feels as though it's somebody who says, this is a thing, I feel passionately about it, I'm going to have to sell this to other people. Yeah. Um, so the peculiarity of the South African transition meant that there wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't post-World War II Germany where one side defeated another and could impose its terms of justice on the other, on the... That the victor, uh, you know, imposed justice on the vanquished. We we had a negotiated transition, and that meant we would always have to come up with something that was more balanced and compromised in terms of how we dealt with the past. And then the leadership within the ANC, a few leading intellectuals, LB Sachs, Carter Asmal, Dalla Omar, who were all sort of human rights lawyers and went on to be very prominent ministers and on the constitutional court of our new country, started articulating some ideas around truth and reconciliation and justice. And then my mentor, a guy by the name of Alex Borain, started a think tank four years before the transition happened, in which he and, and then I did some comparative policy research on what worked. So they're great leaders, and then you had people who did the grind of the the thinking so that by the time we, the transition happened, we were ready to implement something. So we were far-sighted enough to know that we would need something and we, we spent four years researching it so we could put it in place quickly when the change happened. Okay, thank you. And, and with The Conduit, your own entrepreneurial journey, what research did you do of the sort of inside of the tin? If the outside of the tin is, you know, we stand for something that makes us very different. The inside of the tin is when people visit it has to be great. What what research did you do and what are your findings that make your sort of service offering what it is today? So um, a couple of things. So we started with the kind of global ideas conferences and sort of sampled from those. So as I said, TED, World Economic Forum in Davos, the Skoll World Forum, the Aspen Ideas Festival, PopTech, um, you know, all of the kind of places where change makers gather and they are ideas festivals. And we took insights from what's the best format to convey interesting information that make people feel as though they're not in a dry, you know, university lecture or in some kind of physics exam. Then we sort of looked at the private member club model, very fortunate to have as the first chair of the board of the conduits, a guy called Robert Deverux, who was the founding chair of the board of Soho House. So uh, we were able to look at all the private members clubs that we could look at in London, which is private member club Mecca, and then a lot in hospitality. So, you know, when I was at law school, I worked in restaurants for six years while I was putting myself through university. And I've always had that kind of inclination, but we then went and looked at what, what are great hospitality institutions. And then we did a lot of sort of organizational theory of how do you build a sense of community? Because you could have a private members club where you arrive 
you check in, you, you only speak to your invited guest, everybody checks each other out, it's too cool for school and then leaves. <laughs> or you can have a private members club where you build a sense of generosity, reciprocity, curiosity, and people get to know each other. And we chose the latter. And so, as you know, we every single event we do, we start with an icebreaker. We ask an entirely random question and we get people to spend five minutes introducing themselves to somebody they don't know. We hold 200 events a year. We do cocktail masterclasses and uh, we find opportunities to people meet in the bar because our theory is the stronger the web of connections you build between people, the more effective both entrepreneurs and change makers they become. So that's programmed into the DNA of what we do here at The Conduit. It's an in-person thing rather than a remote thing. And so it's not the type of thing that would work on Zoom. It, I don't know. I'm always looking for signals that, you know, should should people be remote or should they be in offices? What? How do you get things to happen? How do you get change to happen? You know, there's there's something in there where you say, look, this, this is a web. This is a network. People who don't know each other meet. And then as a result of that, things can happen. It suggests to me that businesses are better off if they can get their people to meet at least sometimes as opposed to being fully remote forever. I think that the pandemic has, firstly, it's catapulted purpose to the top of almost everybody's agenda, personally in the corporate setting, uh, governments. Um, secondly, it has taught us the value of proximity. Now, Zoom has broken down physical barriers uh, in a ways I think that are, you know, you're not putting that back into the can. It's, you know, the genie's out the bottle. And for many ways that that's an enormous advance. People are not burning thousands of uh, liters of aviation fuel to go for three-hour meetings on the other side of the world, which people previously used to do. And we have new and distributed forms of learning and work that have become surprisingly efficient. However, I don't believe, and I know it from our own organization, we hire, you know, we have, we're a small company, we have 100 people, soon to be 130. You cannot build a culture, you cannot be effective, you cannot be creative, unless you structure human interaction, and by that I mean face-to-face -face interaction, in a systematic way. And I think it makes places like the conduit more important, not less, because people crave proximity. And that is, I think, an irreducibly human condition. We host our client quarterly strategic sessions down on the farm, and it's it's face-to-face. -face. And as clients started to come back to us after the pandemic, we had people just in tears because there was just this massive emotional outpouring. You know, they hadn't they hadn't physically been with each other for 12 months. And some people were just overcome, you know, they, it's unlikely, I think that people would have the same feelings of emotional overwhelm if they were on zoom. It's just different. It's, it's, it's efficient, but not the same. You've just recently opened a new restaurant, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> How's that gone? Well, I've just, uh, you know, looked on Open Table and the reviews are just amazing. I just, you know, just been flicking through them this morning, five out of five on ambiance, service and food, just as far as the eye can see, which 
I'm, I'm going to permit myself a tiny bit of immodesty on behalf of other people, but it is, you know, the, the chefs are astounding. And, you know, we've done a lot of very interesting sourcing over 30 farms that we've gone to, which both have impeccable sustainability credentials, but also have absolutely delicious, well-delivered ingredients. And I think we have cracked the code in delivering incredible, sustainably sourced food in a way that is transporting and delicious. And I always say when we're um, thinking about what we deliver at the conduit is never make people choose between ethics and desire because human beings will almost always choose desire. So the thing to do is to make what is ethical desirable and then you align these two important human impulses. And I think that's what we sought to do in the restaurant. It's beautiful, it's cool, it's a place you want to hang out. The food is exquisite. If you didn't know anything about the sourcing, you'd still eat there and be thrilled. Um, and then it has a backstory, which is about trying to embody a different approach to hospitality, um, one that is consistent with our values and consistent with planetary boundaries. And I think that's hard to do, but I'm, I'm really proud to say we've done it. And it must be a deliberate decision to open a restaurant to the public in a club. And is, is, that, is that because without the public facing, you can't guarantee the quality? Or is it because you're trying to entice the public into understanding what the conduit might be about, or a bit of both? It, or that we're just insane. Um, <laughs> uh, sometimes I think that. No, I think it, it's, a piece of, um, it's a piece of brand building. It's trying to demonstrate that you can do on the outside what you do, you do on the inside, and, you know, there's a very, very, very short list of restaurants which take sustainability extraordinarily seriously and also which have transportingly good food. And I think we wanted to show that if you can do that in restaurants, you can do that in other industry sectors. And it's what the conduit stands for. It's, you know, building profitable, effective, desirable businesses that also have positive impacts burnt into their profit engines and into their balance sheets. Yeah, I, I, you know, in retrospect, I would say do it a year after you open your doors, not two months after you open your doors, because it's like, you know, it's like launching an entirely new business on top of a new business. So it definitely was a, a heavy lift, but I'm, I'm glad that we, now I'm very glad we did it because we, we, we pulled it off. When you originally opened, you weren't in the Covent Garden location. So, I mean, the pandemic obviously wiped out any traffic, but why did you move move locations? Did, was the lease up or? Uh, we moved because the pandemic caused our, our landlord to want to take our building back, which is the uh, most uh, polite <laughs> and diplomatic way okay. that I'm going to uh, uh, articulate. And so what it did was um, we're a very strong business, incredible community, and we were, you know, we had proof of concept and lots of traction and support from our investors. And so decided to, like many businesses, use the pandemic as an opportunity to reset, to find a new home, to find a landlord that 
shared our values uh, and that wanted to contribute to positive social change. And our landlord is the Mercer's company, you know, just an absolutely extraordinary 700-year-old institution with giving back and philanthropy baked into the core of what it does. And they have been extraordinary and by any measure. And, you know, when we when we pay our rent and we know that that is being recircled and um, recycled back into philanthropic giving and doing the sorts of things that we stand for in the world, there's just a 100% alignment. So we are incredibly grateful to have them as landlords and feel it's one of those things where you're happy to pay your rent. And is that is that because somehow picking the right landlord the first time around either wasn't available or didn't feel like it was part of the plan? Or you know, if you had your time again, would you have chosen your landlord with the same care and due diligence you've done this time? I think every business should think very carefully about the foundations upon which it's built. And, you know, for every business, there's a different kind of foundation that you build yourself on. So your capital structure, your investors, your landlords, your suppliers, your staff, your value system. You know, the myth is that good entrepreneurs are insane risk takers. And it is true that you need courage and a propensity and a willingness and a tolerance for risk to be a good entrepreneur. But excellent entrepreneurs, ones who not don't just start things, but start things that last, spend almost all the rest of their time de-risking. And uh, that de-risking starts with having solid foundations and then continues by always looking at your core business drivers and trying to see how you can bake in the highest possible results with the least possible risk most of the time. One of the things that uh, I believe to be true, because it's worked, it's worked for businesses that I've run and for, and for clients that I've coached, but you're, you're in hospitality. And so, you know, you're at the, you know, the staff, the hundred, 130 staff who work for you, does the purpose allow you to attract and retain great people even at that pay bracket? Or do you have people who are working for you because it's a job? Oh, the purpose is, is core, I think. I mean, if you go down to the warehouse or to our other chefs and say, you know, why are you here? They say we're on a mission. They, you know, they don't say I'm here to cook food. They say I'm on a mission. And then they cook extraordinary food, but they do so with the added sense that they're, they're on a mission. Now, I want to hasten to add that a purpose is a necessary but insufficient uh, basis to build a successful business. Because you can have, you can be an incredibly purpose-driven business, but exploit your staff, burn them out, have a top-down command and control culture, um, and 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 not exemplify what you're trying to achieve externally and how you treat people internally. So we spend a, a fair amount of time talking about Ubuntu, which is our kind of our motto both for the business and for our culture, which uh, African proverb embraced by Mandela and Tutu, which means I am because we are. And it sort of emphasizes the fact that anything of great consequences achieved by people acting collaboratively in groups and by 
sharing and supporting and by being generous and by thinking about the welfare of others. Um, and I think that that societies are stronger when they embrace Ubuntu, people are happier when they embrace Ubuntu, we innovate better when we embrace Ubuntu and our businesses are more resilient and stronger from a cultural perspective when we, when we embrace Ubuntu. But you know, you have to wake up every day and you have to learn those lessons and embrace them. Uh, and I will also say that, and this is a piece of my own self-reflection, that when you're an, a driven entrepreneur who sets things up and likes to build things, um, you have there is a balance between the energy and determination it takes to build something and creating a sustainable culture where everybody has a good life, a work-life balance. And if you tip too much in one direction, everybody burns out and has a bad culture. If you tip too far in the other direction, everybody becomes laissez-faire and complacent and uh, doesn't have the kind of fire in their belly. And getting that right is, I think, the alchemy of, uh, of, of, of a great business leader. Indeed. Paul, what is it that you know you know now, other than maybe leave a couple of months between opening a restaurant and opening a private members club? What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier in your life? Well, I think at the highest level of abstraction, you know, I came of age in the fight against apartheid and my formative experiences were about trying to end an evil system. And I think somewhat naively then, as a sort of young man in my early 20s, I thought that ending an evil system would guarantee that you'll build a good system. And I think that's, again, in the kind of uh, realm of necessary but not sufficient. I think what I wish I had and many of us had thought more deeply about was removing evil doesn't achieve doing good. And I think that that applies to uh, how you build societies that give greater equity and opportunity to the bottom of a pyramid and how you structure your politics and your economics to provide dynamic, growing, healthy economies that are also fair and give people a, a fair shot. And I also think, you know, we as humanity had warning signs for the last 50 years around climate and we are we are out of time and we all all of us should have been doing this much earlier because and i link these two points had we been embracing the climate emergency with the degree of focus and energy that we're doing now just 20 years ago not 50 years ago just 20 years ago would be done we would be within planetary bounds. Now we're having to do everything 10 times harder because we're late. So I really wish those of us who were human rights activists in the 1980s were also climate activists. Um, and we, we should have been climate activists. Thank you very much. Um, and what, what books have you read recently, read along the way, think are inspirational? I've read Simon Mundy's book, Race for Tomorrow. He's the editor of the FT Moral Money uh, column. And uh, it's a sort of global survey of the experience that climate change is visiting upon nations and the perils and the promise of, you know, of, of dealing with it and confronting it. His boss, 
Gillian Tett, who is the editor at large of the Financial Times, wrote a book called Anthrovision. Um, and sort of it's a kind of book which tells you what anthropology and the discipline of anthropology can tell you about business. Um, uh, sort, of, sort of slightly 45 degree view um, into how corporate decision making and human affairs run through the prism of anthropology, um, which I think is filled with interesting and fascinating insights. And then if you're wanting to be in the fiction space, Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future is a wonderful piece of future scenario slash science fiction slash future casting. Um, really, really, really wonderful, rich, thoughtful, and ultimately optimistic book about the future. Fantastic. And Paul, what is it that people listening to this should do tomorrow? I think there has never been a more exciting moment in history to lead a life of purpose. And I, I'm definitely not a wag your finger moralist or a holier than thou. I'm as flawed as anybody else. But I would say embrace a life of purpose because there has never been greater research, innovation, technology, capital, job opportunities. There's so many ways in which you can do well for yourself, put bread on the table for your family, contribute to a productive society and achieve positive social impact all at the same time. And it's rare to be able to do all of those things at once. And the, the only impediment to that is trying. So I think that's, um, I mean, it's what we try and do at The Conduit every day. And I think it's available to, to many people. Um, so yeah, that would be my little top tip. Paul, thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much and uh, and um, huge fan and supportive of what you do. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.